they had a bunch of coolers that were all filled with Bud Light and like and I walked <laughs> in and I was like, Oh my god, I have arrived. It was like the kingdom of homelessness, right? Like and uh and it was cool because like when he brought me in, the first thing I saw was this him go to his camp and sit down and grab a bag and put it in front of him and all his stuff was there and I thought, Oh my goodness, like there it's it's a safe space. You know what I mean? And and that's thus started a three-year journey living underground. This is Meredith For Real, The Curious Introvert, and I'm Meredith. I explore the questions people think but don't ask out loud, either because they're taboo or thanks to cultural hypnosis. My mission, and yours if you choose to accept it, is to inspire curiosity by exploring the nuance and paradox of our world. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Hey, Curiositors, it's me, Meredith. Have you ever heard of the tunnel people living underneath the city of Las Vegas? I hadn't until I saw a video about it on YouTube, of course, as one does. So down the rabbit hole I went. My guest paints a picture of what life was like beneath the neon, as he likes to say, and how he went from living there to now helping people transition out 104 people alone from January to April. Isn't that incredible? Towards the end of our chat, he shares the creative ways his program operates, including how they bypass wait lists. It's an amazing story with some really fresh solutions to an age-old problem. I know you're going to enjoy it. And thank you if you're a returning curiositor. Thank you for pressing play once again and making me a part of your week. And if you're new here, welcome. Every Monday is a totally new 30-minute conversation with a paradoxical person or topic. My hope is to disrupt the algorithm with curiosity and varied perspective. There's no specific order to listen to episodes. And at the end of each episode, I offer a next episode suggestion of if you liked that, you might like this sort of thing. So have a look around and hit play on whatever grabs your attention. All right, enjoy the show. Las Vegas. Under the bright lights of 15,000 miles of neon tubing lies 600 miles of dark tunnels. They're flood drains, but they're also home to over 1,000 people. My next guest was one of those people. Growing up, his mother was a struggling addict and prostitute. They moved every six months until he was eight, when it was arranged for him to live with different families every year. Emancipated at 17, heroin addict by 18, and by age 24, he had burned enough bridges couch surfing and staying with friends that he was on the streets. Today, he's going to share what it was like living in the underground city of storm drains, how he got out, and how he co-founded an organization to help others do the same. Social change agent, sober soldier, doesn't gamble with his chips, Paul Votrino. Thanks for coming to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. You said that despite, you know, kind of the chaotic sounding childhood that you actually remember your childhood as super happy. And I think you said you were in theater and, um, you know, had did, did had good grades. It's such a strange reminder of what we don't know behind the scenes of what's going on with people's lives. Yeah, I, uh, I think inherently I've always just wanted to enjoy the space that I was in. Um, and, and theater was a really good mechanism for that. Like 
the escape that was kind of built in the theater. Um, and I excelled quite quickly in that arena and I was able to start landing roles very early on in my life. And it was really just a great distraction and it provides a social life. And I actually even went to a performing arts high school where, um, they didn't have sports. So like, the theater majors were like the football team. And so like now it, it kind of created that, that social system for me to kind of thrive in, in spite of what was happening there. At home. So take us to the day that you moved into the tunnels. Um, I understand that you have to be invited. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, so uh, there's 600 miles of flood drains in Vegas. Um, the ones that are populated are not ones that you get to freely walk into. So I'm living on the south end of town. I was homeless at this point for probably about nine months. Um, and I think we all understand what that looks like. So every morning I wake up, I grab every bag of everything that I own, and I carry it around with me all around town until I find the place that I'm going to stop moving at the end of the night, and I go to bed. And uh, the elements in Vegas, though they're they're – you know, like it doesn't rain a lot, but like when it rains, it rains. Um, it's super hot. It's super cold at night. It's right. So the weather is kind of, kind of volatile. Um, and, and living in, you know, homeless above ground is just, it's highly inconvenient, which is kind of, I guess, a joke, but I think homelessness is inconvenient, but regardless. So, right. um, one day I, uh, and I had seen these guys around before and I knew who they were. Some of the other kids that I was almost with, you know, that had been in that area longer or whatnot. Um, uh, primarily a, a friend of mine named Damage, uh, who has since passed away, but he grew up on that side of town. He was a heroin addict and he grew up interacting with these guys. And so I knew who they were and I was panhandling outside of a, an in and out <clears throat> and the whole motive of any kind of panhandling was 98% of the time money to buy drugs and 2% of the time money to buy supplies and food, right? And uh, I was sitting at the umbrella table outside of In-N-Out and I'm, I was there pretty much like all day. I remember like I didn't, because you, you basically stay in a spot until you get asked to leave by the store owners, right? So I was there pretty much all day. Um, and these guys come walking up near the end of the day. And I had kind of seen them circling the spot a couple of times. And they were like, hey, man, you've been here all day. Like, you need to share the spot. It's time for you to go. Um, one of the tricks to the trade is, is if you panhandle in front of, like, a fast food joint, not only will you make a couple bucks, but someone will inevitably give you food. So um, now money doesn't have to be spent on food, right? So, And I didn't have enough money at the time in my mind to be satisfied with the day. And so I had told them, I was like, well, Hey man, I need a couple more bucks and then I'll leave. And, uh, they didn't really appreciate the answer. And they sit at the umbrella table next to me and, um, they did their best to kind of, to disturb the moment as it were. The one guy stood right in front of me, uh, out the door and asked everybody that came out. The other guy stood on the other side of the tables and was asking everybody that came up. And then one guy posted like right across from me and just kind of like stared at me the whole time, like, like intimidating, you know? And, uh -huh. uh, and I didn't falter. I, I, and I remember it actually happened quickly. Like I was only there for maybe 10 or 15 more minutes, but one of the people that had seen me when they walked in prior to these guys showing up came out and ended up giving me like 10 bucks, which was, you know, a couple dollars more than what I was like hoping to get. And so, 
I get up and I and I leave. I got what I needed. And I said some sly comments to them about it. You know what I mean? I was like, I basically like, see, that's all I needed. You guys like not worth all of this, whatever, whatever I said. And I and I kept pushing. So I don't know. Time is kind of elusive when you're homeless and on heroin. So I don't know how much time it passed in between that moment and the next. But the next moment, the kid, the guy, he wasn't a kid, but that was staring at me comes up to me and he's like, Hey man, you got a lot of heart. Like, um, and he kind of starts joking with me about that moment. Like how, you know, they were there to scare me, whatever. Right. And so like, he's like, where are you staying? And I was like, Oh, anywhere, anywhere I can lay my head. And he's like, well, we live in the drains, you know, over here off so-and-so and, and would you be interested in coming down? And I was like, sure, I would, why not? And he's like, cool. Meet me here tonight at this time when we go back in and I'll bring you in. And that's how it happened. Well, that's how it happened. And then when, when I went down there, he had like set up a little spot for me with like this like little twin mattress. And they even gave me like a bedside table. And, and, and the visual of walking into this was like there was all these beds and these little spots that they had created. And at the, at the end, behind all of the camps was this big fire pit that was under like a, uh, a grate. So like the smoke would go up through the grate, right? And they had a bunch of coolers that were all filled with Bud Light, and like, and I walked <laughs> in, and I was like, "Oh my God, I have arrived!" It was like the kingdom of homelessness, right? Like, and uh, and it was cool because like when he brought me in, the first thing I saw was is him go to his camp and sit down and grab a bag and put it in front of him, and all his stuff was there, and I thought, "Oh my goodness!" Like, there, it's it's a safe space, you know what I mean? And and that's thus started a three year journey living underground. So it felt like paradise compared to being above ground, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Were there, um, with the tunnel system, did you, like, were there nicknames for the different parts of the tunnel? Because it's a, it's a big, um, a big space. So I'm just curious, like, how did you travel around in the underground? Yeah. Oh yeah. We absolutely, we, there's nicknames for the different locations. So one of the ones in that area was called the burnt table and it was called the burnt table because one night they got all shit face drunk and, uh, they accidentally spilled a candle onto a spool that they were using as a table and the table caught on fire and burned out everybody. And like, um, and so that was forever dubbed the burnt table, right? And like, there's there's one uh, is called the gallery, which has this phenomenal display of street art underground, um, and that's the one that I think you see the most in the media, even. But like for us, it's just the gallery, right? And you go there and and whatnot. And so yes, there's absolutely nicknames that we use. I was a little obsessive about the tunnel system. Like my story progresses to. My heroin dealer's driver got caught selling after three years of no cop contact, and he got really paranoid. So he asked if I would sell the drugs to the homeless because he was now, you know, nervous about having people out everywhere. So I eventually uh, traveled underground as far as that system would take me and found all the different exit and entry points and all the different grates throughout the system that uh, were in front of landmarks. So, like, I remember one of them was, like, this Burger King, and I'd be like, oh, meet me at Burger King. And what I meant was is the grate above the Burger King in the parking lot, and I would pass the drugs up through the grate, and they would pass the money down, 
kind of like it, the drug dealing clown, right? And so like, <laughs> and, then, and then I would take my bike and I would ride to the next place where my phone would catch service and I would wait for somebody to call and I'd do that. And so I got obsessive about it and I mapped out probably a good, you know, three mile radius of how to travel underground um, and meet and leave and, you know, people at different spots. Wow, that's elaborate. Where did you like you have like a headlamp or how did you did you just know oh, yeah. how to travel without any light? So I had a headlamp, I had a bicycle and I would tie a flashlight to the crossbar of the handlebars on the bicycle as well, um, which is like probably one of the funnest experiences of my life was traveling 15, 20 miles an hour on a bike under in these sewage, you know what I mean? Or it's not sewage, but in these tunnels, right? Um, but I did get to a point where like I would start to concoct like, you know, this escape route from my camp to a certain exit. And the reason there was again, straight paranoia. If the cops ever came down, if anybody ever came to whatever, I would be able to escape, um, but without a light. So, and I would, I memorized this trail that I would do and and I spent many, many, many nights in the pitch, pitch black running into walls as I was trying to figure out how to do this without a light. And uh, eventually I mastered it, though. Eventually I could travel at certain points underground without a light. Wow. And what was the social structure like? Is there like an unofficial, you know, person in charge? Is it, you know, it, are are there little committees? I mean, I mean, maybe that's a stupid sounding question, but this is so foreign to anything that definitely I've ever experienced and I imagine to most listeners too. So forgive me if that's a ridiculous question. No, no, there's definitely a hierarchy in most of them. So like there's really two sets of like, uh, what would structure, right? One would be completely unstructured. There is nobody in charge. And, and those you can tell right out the gate. You come in and they're messy and there's there's no order, right? Like, and you can see it. And the, the camps are usually spaced very far apart. Um, and it's really just a landing spot. They found the tunnel. They landed there. They, they fly solo. They don't work with anybody underground. Like, they are just homeless in that spot and that's it. Um, and then the other structure is, is that there's groupings of people and all of their camps are, you know, relatively close, like far enough away to have some privacy, but not spaced out too far. They're all within talking, if not yelling distance of each other. Um, and in those cases, there is a sense of hierarchy. I couldn't tell you how it's established. Like for some, it's who's been there longest. For some, it's who has the best hustle. For some, it's who's, you know the better fighter, right? Like it's, it's really just a matter of like whoever takes control. But that being said, um, they're more of a spokesperson or an elected official as it were, because it is very much like, uh, you know, what do we all want? Right? Like, and so like, let's say there's 10 of us down there and one of us is creating a lot of problems and the other nine of us agree, this dude's got to go. Well, you know, then we, this dude's got to go. And like that guy that appointed, whatever the, the, the spokesperson might be the guy to be like, Hey bro, it's time for you to get out of here. Right. Like, um, so it's, I mean, it's convoluted. It's not like written in law. Right. But like, right. you can always identify in those tunnels, like who might be the guy that is the one to talk to as opposed to everybody else. Like they're, they're very easy to find. 
Hmm. And how, how did you end up leaving the tunnels or getting out of the tunnels? Well, I didn't leave. I was taken out. Um, well, kind of, I guess. I, <laughs> so the last night, and I, and I tell this story, like, there's a lot of humor in it for me. But, like, what I find funny, a lot of people find tragic. But, like, um, <laughs> I think those I are the best talked- stories personally. So you're in good company. Fire away. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I hadn't even slept underground for about two weeks. I, uh, my girlfriend had swung a two by four at my head and that was not on my relationship goals. So like (laughs) I like packed a bag and, uh, and I left and, um, I was sleeping above ground for a while. If I sleep is probably not even the the full truth because I did a lot of methamphetamine too, but I was staying above ground for that period of time. And, uh, you know, kind of trying to figure out what am I going to do? Like I've been in that spot for three years now. Like I had brought her into it about a year and a half into it, but like, it's just not worth it anymore. And, um, I start to kind of develop this idea. I had seen this tunnel on the other side of the town that she had never seen before. Cause it was before I ever found the tunnels, I would go over there and I remember seeing it. And I was like, well, maybe if I just go over there and that was my great plan. My great plan was just like, Oh, I'll fix my life. Like, I'll pack up all my stuff and I'll change jurisdictions because the cops over there are Metro and the cops over here are Henderson. Like it was like, like the Spanish border or something. It's like, I <laughs> thought that like, you know what I mean? Like they yeah. didn't work together or something. I don't know. Um, but like all my stuff was still in my camp. And so she ended up running into me and she's like, Oh, please come back. And I see this is like a great opportunity to go back down and get my stuff. And, um, we get high on some meth and I go back down there. And again, like sleep is not really the honest answer. So I'm, I'm back underground for a couple of days. Um, and the whole time, like I'm waiting for her to go to sleep, like, you know, three, four, five days into this. Um, so that she, so she was awake for five, five days. Oh yeah. Methamphetamine is a hell of a drug. So like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and we sat down there and like, and I'm getting like antsy about it. And I, and I remember I had like a 40 bag of heroin on me that I didn't want to share. Like, why would I share it with her? Like I'm leaving her. And so like now I'm starting to really feel some type of way. Cause not only do I need her to go to sleep so that I can get high, I need her to go to sleep so I can leave. And finally she passes out and, uh, I start gathering my you know stuff and I sit down on the bed and I pull this heroin out and I, I lay it all out on my lap. Cause like it's, you know, there's a bit of a ritual and, um, out of, out of the corner of my eye, I have my headlight on out of the corner of my eye. I see this, like this, like this, like monster <laughs> kind of like creep into my line of my line of sight. And I look over and it's like this Godzilla sized black cricket, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I start to have a conversation with the cricket cause why wouldn't I? And naturally, I really don't remember- naturally. Yeah, you know, and I really don't remember what was said or his side of the argument, but I do remember <laughs> that he kept getting closer, right? And and finally, he was like at my feet, and I, there's like that stare down moment, and and I and I was like, "Don't you do it!" And he didn't listen, and he jumps right up at my face, and like I flail back, and I lose some of the heroin on my lap and on the bed, and instant resentment. And uh, I gather all this stuff, and I think, you know, the cricket's got to die. And so I start to try to find this cricket, and I spent hours. Like, I, I 
I always tell people it had to be at least two hours that I was looking for this cricket, and it's pitch black. I've got a single beam flashlight. The cricket's black, and it's taunting me with its little cricket noises, right? Like, <laughs> and everything underground echoes. So, like, there's no real way of knowing where the sound is coming from. And eventually, I burn out on that. And like, I'm like, okay, I gotta go. I gotta go. And so I go back. <laughs> I pull the heroin out again. And this is such a great like way of explaining addiction, right? Like, I needed to leave. I wanted to leave. Like. But like, all I had to get high before I could do anything else. And uh, I pull the heroin out again, and right as I pull it out, I see two big black or two bright flashlights at the end of the tunnel. And I know that they're the police because they have the best flashlights in town, and none of them are that bright. And I was super jealous of that thing. And um, so I, I I hide the heroin again, and I, I lay down and act like I'm sleeping, and they come up and they. You know, they do their thing. And what's your name? What's your social? Do you have any warrants? And uh, I said, you know, my name, my social. And I told them no. And I did. I had warrants. Uh, in Henderson, I thought. So I tell them no, no, whatever. And they're like, how long will it take you to be out of here? And I said, uh, two minutes. Like, remember, I had already kind of gathered my bags and whatnot. And so they're like, okay, well, we'll be at the end of the tunnel. We'll be waiting for you. So they go walking out the short end of the tunnel and I grab the bags that I had and I go running out the other side of the tunnel and I'm like, my moment has finally arrived. So I kick off the light in my, my flashlight and I start running down the tunnel pitch black and all I could hear in the background was her voice like, where are you going, you motherfucker? <laughs> like, it's like, I just started running, you know what I mean? Like, and uh and again, here's my disease. So like this route that I had planned out was like a year, a, a mile and a half to the first entrance, uh, exit, whatever, entrance, exit, right, opening. And there's two tunnels that go in two completely opposite directions that are miles away from where I'm at. And the police are not going to be able to find me if I keep going. But the whole time I'm running, my brain's like, you got to get high, you got to get high, you got to get high. And like, so I hit that opening and I decide, in spite of self-preservation, to climb out of the tunnel, go into the lows, and get high. Hmm. And as soon as I walk out of lows to continue my escape, the police are there. And uh, I mean, well, not as soon as, but like very shortly after. And uh, they're like, what happened? And I'm like, what do you mean what happened? You told me to leave. And they were like, yeah, we, we told you we'd be waiting for you. And they were like, you said you didn't have any warrants. And I said, I don't have any warrants. And they were like, bro, you got a warrant in Henderson and in county. And I looked the cop dead in the eye and I said, I didn't know I had one in county too. And that was the wrong answer. <laughs> wrong answer. Yeah. <laughs> that was the wrong answer. And so they arrested me and they, they put me in jail. And I sat in jail for 50 days, which was like the first time I had withdrawn from heroin in a very, very, very long time. And uh, I got put into drug court and... You know, the only part about that that's really, really important is the day I got out, it was pouring rain and I was going to run and I was smart enough not to run back to flood drains while it was raining and it ended up raining every day for about a week and a half, hmm. which was just enough time for me to go back to court one more time because I was in drug court. We'd go weekly hear what they wanted me and it wasn't that bad and I was like well shit they're gonna give me three months of free rent like I'll ride with that and slowly but surely I kept hitting these new milestones where I kept buying into another three months another three months and 
eventually I graduated drug court with 15 months sober and I, I just figured, well, this hasn't been as bad as I thought it would be sobriety and uh, let's see where this takes us. Hey, Curiositors, just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. If trash TV leaves you feeling drained and you want to support creators like yours truly, check out Stream Moco. You can search shows by your mood and even, you know, watch my show, The Curious Introvert. For every $3.99 subscription, they give away a dollar for good and support their creators like your girl. Find my affiliate link in the episode description or the bio link in my Instagram account, Stream Moco, the streaming network that gives a damn. If you've got backyard barbecue plans for 2022, but mosquitoes are not invited, I recommend Insec. I've been using their pest control service for several years now. They have a certified mosquito identification specialist on staff, and pollinator care is always top of mind. If you live in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give them a call, ensec.net. The UWF Historic Trust. We shoot the show at the Pensacola Museum of History. It not only houses exhibits of lesser-known Pensacola history, it's an event space too. So if you need a unique space in downtown Pensacola for a fundraiser, networking event, or a corporate party, take a look at historicpensacola.org. And if you want to tour one of the 12 museums, get your tickets in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Get emails by texting REAL to 66866. Now back to the show. Wow, what a unique sobriety story. That is so interesting. Um, I'm, I'm really not familiar with that kind of incentive program. So that's really curious to me as well. So then you're, you're clean, you're sober, and you're not living in the tunnels. Uh, how, what happened between that and your organization? How did you end up starting Shine a Light to help others get sober and get out of the tunnels? So uh, I was about three years sober and I met a guy named Matt O'Brien and Matt was an author who had heard of a story about a guy that murdered his family and used the blood drain system to escape the dragnet. So the police set up this dragnet. They couldn't understand how he escaped. It later came out that he went underground. So Matt wanted to write a piece about like what he experienced that night going into this, you know, the dark depths of the blood drains. And so Matt goes down there, um, and essentially, he discovers that people live underground. And Matt kind of becomes this, um, I don't know, whistleblower, I guess, you know, for lack of a better term, about like, like, hey, like, you know, we've got a bunch of people underground living here. And he ended up producing a lot of the articles about it. He ended up bringing a lot of attention to it. Like, I believe CNN covered one of his stories. Like, he, he put a lot of awareness on what was happening beneath the neon. And um, he was he was like uh, their friend, right? So he would go down there once a month with, you know, when he brought me, it was like 50 double cheeseburgers from McDonald's and fries. <laughs> and we just kind of travel around and check in with people and he would write down what they needed. And then the next month he would go down there, he'd bring that stuff. And I, at the time I was working as a mental health technician for a treatment center. And I, uh, I started, I'm like, well, what do they do when they ask for help? And he's like, oh, we just start calling around and see who can help them. And, 
And I was like, man, like you've got something here where we, you could be the help. You could be the help. And he's like, well, it's funny you say that because I'm actually going to San Salvador in two weeks. Um, he's like, I was looking for somebody that might be interested in like keeping this going in the sense of like, these guys have somebody that'll visit them. And I was like, absolutely. And so uh, the next six months of my life was me, a backpack and a flashlight, just kind of going down down to the tunnels, talking with people, making relationships. And, and in the back of my brain, kind of conceptualizing what this might look like. Um, my career kind of changed and I got put into a position of leadership. And I had a little bit more autonomy on like who we were betting in our facility. And I started to fluff out this idea that this could be a foundation and it could be different than what was being done for the homeless. One, we were going where nobody else wanted to go. Um, two, in our community, there's a lot of wait lists uh, for those that want to get out of homelessness. And I thought if we could create a system that is a no wait list system that when somebody asks, we place, um, we might be able to help more effectively, efficiently. And that's what I've spent the last five years doing is, is um, I have, you know, my right hand, Robert Banghart has fledged out this outreach piece while I work with the community to ensure that there is a bed available at all times for anybody that might ask for help. How do you do that? Is it you have more than one facility or you're, are you partnered with other facilities and have a bed kind of reserved? Yeah, so we pay for certain beds to always be open. We also use a lot of the sober livings in town. So, like, if, if all the detoxes are full, the sober living will let them sleep on the bed overnight so that the next morning we can get them into detox. Um, all of the, the, the facilities in town that have beds, I meet with all of them. Um, and I tell them, if you, if you can't get them in when I call, all I need from you is a no. Like, uh, but if you say yes, what I'm asking for is a long-term stay bed where you can allow us to come back in and case manage them. So we have shelters out here that, that have like this dual program. There's overnight shelters and then there's long-term stay. And I, and I just kind of explained to them, I don't want yes because you have an overnight shelter bed. I want yes because you can keep them long-term. Um, and we're 100% privately funded because if we took any government funds, we would be restricted on who we could use to help these individuals, right? Like you can only use approved people that can accept that funding. So I keep it 100% private funding so that I have access to all of these beds, which are all businesses. Um, and, and we're not restricted in the sense of where we can place somebody to help that somebody. So are there requirements to start your program? Do Because a lot of these, you know, you have to be clean before you are allowed in. Um, so there is, yeah, I mean, we, we if, you, if you're addicted to drugs, we're going to ask if you're ready to go to detox. Um, there are programs out here that are called harm reduction. And that means that we'll place you before we deal with the drug addiction, right? And so because we're not the actual housing provider, there's very there's no requirements. So we ask, are you ready? You want to go to detox? You want to go into a, a sobriety program? If their answer is no, then we pivot to the harm reduction programs that we're partnered with. And we say, hey, we got a guy that's looking for a bed. He's not quite ready yet, but he needs to get housed so we can start that. 
and then they'll house him. And really what we've done is we've created and widened the safety net that, that we're able to communicate with all of them in a usually siloed business because everybody has beds to fill. We're simply a referral source. So everybody's willing to play good in the sandbox with us because we're not actually competing against anybody. We're just trying to help you fill your beds. That is brilliant. A lot of people don't realize that the nonprofits, especially in the realm of, um, you know, transitioning folks out of homelessness, that there is this weird competition and uh, it's, it's, it's a fascinating space. I, from what I understand of like how Vegas culture works, it's not really the most trusting um, group of people. Have you found that it's difficult to um, kind of get people into your program because of that culture or do they trust you automatically because you used to live in the tunnels yourself? Uh, I get a lot of trust and it's not I, Paul. Let, let's, let's like rework the way that that gets said. Like, the 50 plus volunteers that go out every week are all, um, I, I would say 90% of them have a history with homelessness, drug addiction. You know, there's some shared element to that story. Um, so when I first started going out, yes, like there's some misgiving regardless. Like we're going into like the tunnels are not <laughs> welcoming. They're not cheery. They're not right. Like, it doesn't matter who you are. Like there's some, there's some doubt. Right. Um, but like what Rob and his team and that outreach arm have been able to establish is, um, being welcomed into every tunnel in this town with, you know, a smile like, Hey, how are you guys doing? It's good to see you again. Did you, you know, um, they're, they're really receptive to us today. And, and I would like to say that, you know, Vegas, the Vegas community uh, in recovery, the Vegas recovery community, is probably one of the most stellar communities that I've ever been a part of in my entire life. And even when I go out of state and I kind of go to some of these other recovery meetings and I get to meet some people, like what I realize is like the tight knit, um, altruistic uh, brotherhood that exists in our community. Uh, is kind of contradictory to what you said about people not being trusting. It's it's almost the complete opposite. Um, there's this willingness to help and and give you a chance first and foremost out the gate, which is something that's super inspiring to me. That it's super inspiring to me too. I had no idea. What well, you think? We're Sin City. The only way anybody's going to get sober or clean in this city is if. If the, the energy in our recovery community can match the energy over here. <laughs> That's a very good point. I also didn't think of that. You're right. Yeah. Um, you know, for a lot of communities, ending homelessness or at least reducing it, it just feels very whack-a-mole-ish. You know, that game from, what is that, Chuck E. Cheese or whatever, right. where, you know, the things keep popping up no matter how many you actually hit. Um, it just, it can feel like, you know, what's the point sometimes? Um, I'm curious if you had the authority in Vegas to make big changes, what kind of changes would you make that you would feel would make the biggest impact on reducing homelessness there? Um, I think that where I agree, like ending homelessness is like this elusive concept in my brain. Um, 
but but oftentimes I know plenty of homeless that have asked for help and have been told, okay, cool, let me take your name down and we'll get back to you when, when the we're, we're available to get you bedded. So for me, um, we have 5,000 plus homeless and just under like 1,800 beds. Why? Like, I think for, for everybody that's homeless, there should be a bed available, right? Like if everybody that was homeless woke up tomorrow um, and said, okay, we're ready, we wouldn't be able to embrace it anyways. Um, so for me, it's the systemic issue in, in the bottleneck, right? Like we need to be able to house everybody if we really truly want to solve homelessness we need to be able to take that on so again to the root of shine light like eliminating a wait system ensuring that the service is available the day that they're ready um when you're in our situation drug addiction homelessness mental health all three of those things come with very tiny windows of opportunity so when somebody has the inspiration and says hey you know what i'm ready for help that moment of time doesn't exist very long um and if it's too hard to receive that help they're just gonna go well screw it i'll just keep doing what i'm doing um so i believe that the best way to reduce homelessness is to provide more uh of a foundation when it comes to being able to actually provide these services so more immediate opportunities for stability when the window is there Yep. Huh. Okay. Um, and what's next for Shine a Light? What's the future hold for the organization? I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I think that um, we're headed in a direction right now where we want to do some drop-in centers so that they have access to us quicker. I want to do case management for guys that haven't quite accepted help in getting off the streets, but there's no reason that they shouldn't be um, – in a position where they can get their ID restored by us or their birth certificate or help with the other things that we're doing just because they're homeless. Um, and, and hopefully eventually the goal is, is that it is a standalone foundation with paid employees. Cause up into this point, um, it's a hundred percent volunteer with 99% of our money goes to client services and the other 1% pays for these small administrative fees. Um, but we're growing at a rate where we're starting to realize that we need to actually have some full-time guys on. Uh, and being that we're privately funded makes that a challenge. Because, like, I could write for a grant from the government and get it covered like that, but then all of a sudden my hands are tied. Um, so we're in this really unique space where we're going to have to kind of double down on that so we can continue to grow. Last year we pulled 81 people out of the tunnels. This year so far we're at 140. Oh my um, gosh, that's amazing. Of, yeah, of those 104, I have 32 of them are still in programs being case managed. Um, of those 32, I have half of them we're paying rent for. Um, and that could be treatment rent, that could be sober living rent, and two of them is actually, they just got into independent living. So uh, we told them we'd cover the first 90 days while they were able to save some money. Wow. So, um, us all being on this volunteer status is, is something that we're managing well, but we're growing beyond that. Right. And so that's a perfect transition for me to ask how people can donate and how they can stay in touch with what you're doing. 
Uh, so donations, if you go to our Facebook page at Shine a Light LV, um, there's a couple links. The contact us link leads you there. Um, and, you know, in the page info, there's a link that will take you directly to a Network for Good page. Um, what we're looking for, what we need, what we're hoping for is, is to establish a very strong recurring donation. Um, so... Um, if, if everybody just, you know, commits to donating $15 a month, uh, you could put us in a position where we might be able to kind of look past having to cover those rents because there is a committed recurring donation that would help us pay with rent for rent. And we can maybe direct our attention elsewhere to see if we can find some funding to hire a case manager. Um, www.shinalightlv.com. It's a brand new website that we've just spent a lot of time, you know, building that was uh, also, you know, done out of donation and, uh, the guy that designed it for us actually made a thousand dollar donation to us and then, <laughs> then still like, right. So, uh, <laughs> please go check that out. It's, it's, it's new space for us to have a website and to be working, you know, kind of in this level that is a little bit more professional than a, than a group of drunks might be used to working in. But, uh, just all the support, the likes, Instagram, like, you know, follow us uh, and, and spread the message. The more people that know what it is that we're trying to do and how we're kind of swimming against the stream to, to change the way we address people when they ask for help, the more ability we'll have to actually be able to, to tackle it. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was incredible. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you've loved a couple episodes of the show, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the Good Pods app. Just share where you're listening from and why you liked a certain episode. And if you liked this episode, you'll also like the one I did with a Fort Walton Beach, Florida man who shares his story as a meth addict, porn and celebrity photographer. Episode 46. Stay tuned next week when I talk with the dad of the internet, Rob Kenny. Talk to you then.